we have had five, this will be the fifth sermon on spiritual warfare. And so today we want to look at Satan's war against the church. I felt like that should be included in the series. And so if you have your Bibles today, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. As I prepared this message, I found this subject to be vast. Satan is attacking the church from so many different angles in our day that I found it's difficult uh, to narrow the scope of what we would cover. And when I say church, we not only uh, maybe are referring to local churches, but I'm the overall church as well, the ecclesia. For an example, there is the pleasure-driven church, and there is the social gospel church, and there is the liberal church, and there is the uncommitted church, and there is the entertainment-driven church, and there is the self-driven church, and there is the worldly church, and there is the church and the destruction of biblical manhood, and also there is the diminishing impact of the church upon our culture. And the church is definitely in decline in America, and and we need to ask why. And I think we could give many reasons, but I think some of the things that I just mentioned are contributing factors to its decline. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 8, Jesus asked a question, and he said, when uh, the Son of Man cometh, will faith be found upon the earth? And Jesus answered his own question, In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, where he said, Upon this rock I will build. He takes the initiative, he builds it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God works through us. We plant, we water, but God ultimately gives the increase to his family. And some people ask, when trouble maybe comes to a local ministry, they ask, what is God trying to tell us? And maybe a better question ought to be, why is Satan attacking us? And, you know, if it's a dead church, if it's a lukewarm church, uh, if it's a church that's just coasting, uh, Satan has those churches where he wants them. And so uh, we, we need to ask, why is he coming after maybe a particular church? It may be that they are seeking to really glorify God, that the Word of God is being preached, uh, that God is pleased with those ministries, and it gets Satan's attention. Uh, Allow me to say that the church in America is certainly in decline. Uh, The latest Pew Research survey uh, of the religious composition of the United States finds that Christians continue to make up a majority of the U.S. population but their share of adult of the adult population is 12 points lower in 2021 than it was in 2011. Currently, about three in 10 U.S. adults—that's 29%—are religious nuns, no affiliation with religion whatsoever. People who describe themselves maybe as atheists, as agnostics as skeptics, nothing in particular, when asked about their religious uh, identity or affiliation. Self-identified Christians of all varieties make up about 63% of the American population, and that would include uh, Protestantism as well as Catholicism, and, and even include um, maybe some uh, 
religions that we would consider culting. But Christians outnumber religious nuns uh, by a ratio of a little more than two to one. And you might say, well, that's great. We outnumber the nuns two to one. But let me tell you this, in 2007, when the sinner began asking questions about religious identity, Christians outnumber nuns by almost five to one, and now it's down to two to one. So back in 2007, it was 78% to 16% religious nuns. Uh, the Protestant share of the population is down 4% in just the last five years. And it has dropped 10 points in the last 10 years. To narrow down this vast subject, I felt led to study it within the parameters of the confines of the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. That helped me to narrow the scope. So the temptation of the Lord Jesus is almost, is a most interesting, it's a most informative one and can help us in the church and even can help us in our individual Christian lives. It's helpful for us to remember that the setting of satanic temptation of Jesus, we need to remember it. And, and uh, it, it came after his baptism. Now, there's no saving merit in baptism. It is an act of obedience uh, that God has asked us to do. It, it, it is a church ordinance. We are commanded to do it. But very often after baptism, there is a battle with the devil. More than one young, young convert has learned that the baptismal waters do not drown the devil. I, and very soon after you are saved, you will find that you will be tempted a lot of times as you have never been before by Satan. And so after the dove comes the devil. After the voice of the Father from heaven comes the hiss of the serpent from hell. That was true for Jesus. It's often true for us. It is also helpful for us to understand the strategy that is involved here. You will notice in chapter 4 of Luke and verse 1, it says that Jesus was full of the Spirit and that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That lets us know right there that God had a particular strategy in mind in the temptation of our Lord. The Spirit of God led him out there where he would be tempted in the wilderness. Let me tell you a couple purposes, I believe, of the temptation of Christ. One of the purposes of it is to prove that God's Son, the Lord Jesus, was perfection, that He was sinless. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. And even though Jesus was hit with everything the devil could throw at him, we know that he did not yield. He died. That's the only one that could have died for us. Someone that was sinless, and that was Jesus, the Son of God, uh, both deity and humanity in one person. He was God's perfect man. And it is also intended to show you how we will encounter the temptation of Satan and how you and I can have victory over the devil in our own lives. I believe we have a message in Christ's temptation right here in Luke 4 that is especially intended for the modern church today. We are living in a very different time. 
very different days. Uh, my father pastored about 40 years, and um, the times we're living in now is much different. In fact, I've been here since September the 5th, 1982, and at Faith, and I see a, a great difference in the church uh, and uh, that's in the world today, a major difference. Uh, so we're living in very different days. The devil is constantly changing his methods, his methodology of approach. And sometimes the devil approaches us from the outside. And he does that maybe through persecution of the church, like it is, it's being done in certain countries, especially your Arab countries, also in China, also probably somewhat in Russia. Uh, Christians are really being persecuted. But he has never been successful that way. See, the early church, uh, it was persecuted. In Jerusalem, you have the Macedonian churches that sent them money, uh, but they were being so persecuted that they lost their businesses and their homes, and, and it was terrible. And, uh, but yet it spread the church out because the church wanted sort of to just stay together, and it spread them out, and it ended up spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to the ends of the earth. And so we find that he has far more success when he works on the inside. And I, I ask you this, are you aware of the fact that the devil is among the most regular attendees in church? Are you aware of that? Uh, in fact, sometimes the devil occupies pulpits. And the devil talks about, or the Bible rather, talks about Satan's ministers who transform themselves into ministers of light. Sometimes the devil occupies the pew. I mean, Paul talked about false brethren. He talked about false doctrine. Now, we remember the Bible where the, the wheat is. Uh, Satan will always sow the tares. So there, there's always tares among the wheat. Uh, and there is also the church growth movement uh, that has generated a number of terms today that we need to be aware of. One of the terms is the term seeker-friendly. Uh, it, it's really taken from computer lingo. The philosophy is that the church must design its programs and its approach so that it will be friendly and compatible to those on the outside that we're trying to reach. Uh, the philosophy is become like the world to try to reach the world. Of course, we know uh, first of all, that it is really an unbiblical movement because in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, it, it plainly says there's none that seeketh after God, no, not one. And, and if you think lost people out here banging our doors down, uh, trying to get into the church, then you don't know what's going on, friend. It, it is true that we need to always be aware of the needs of people. We need to be awake uh, of the best approaches to reach people with the gospel. I would prefer rather than a seeker-friendly, I would prefer a center-friendly church. Center-friendly. Because it is true that you and I need to make it easy for lost people to get to our services, and when they get here, it's important that they find a friendly church. The church should be so warm and so welcoming that new guests... Uh, God could use it to make them want what we have in Christ because we're so friendly. 
In 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32, it says that the men of Ezekar were men who had an understanding of the times and knew, it says, what Israel ought to do. And I think as a church, we need to have an understanding of the time. We need to know what the times are. Uh, I uh, heard about a little lady who was driving a car, and the policeman pulled her over, and there were two little ladies sitting in the back seat. And the policeman said to them, ma'am, and especially her, said, I pulled you over because you're speeding. And she said, young man, I'm not speeding. Uh, he said, yes, ma'am. You, you have been running quite a bit over the speed limit, in fact. And she said, young man, I'm not speeding. She said, that sign right there says 79. And he said, ma'am, that sign is not a speed limit sign. That sign is the number of the highway you're on. And then he looked back at the two little ladies in the back seat and said, by the way, why are these ladies in the back seat as white as a sheet? And she said, I don't know, said they've been that way ever since I turned off a 129. <laughs> I think it's important for us to be able to read the signs of the time and know where we are in, in regards to the church in America. But if you aren't very, very careful, you can fall to the subtle temptation of the devil and his cohorts, and you can make a church so seeker-friendly that it really becomes Satan-friendly. Satan-friendly. There was a church that has adopted a seeker-friendly approach, uh, accommodating the church to whatever the people out in the world wanted. And so uh, they gave some promises to their city. They sent out these mail-outs. This actually happened. Uh, that went out into the city, and here's the first promise that they had on the readout. It says, if you will come to our church, it will be all over in less than an hour, and you will still have plenty of time to enjoy the day. It's almost like the church is saying, church is a, bore, uh, a, a burden, it's boring, and uh, so get it over with so you can have the rest of the day. And so can you imagine Jesus saying something like that? I can't. The mail-out also promised not to make you listen to a bunch of old songs. In the New Testament church, we're reminded that the early church sang hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. It, it lets us know that you can have a variety of music in worship. And so, uh, when you think about that, I mean, it, it lets you know that they're doing it completely away with the hymns. I think any, if the music exalts God and glorifies God, uh, we, we can use it. Uh, but, but we don't want to be like the world, that's for sure. Uh, uh, here's another promise. If you come to our church, well, no, here it is. When you come to our church, leave your wallet at home. Well, you'll never hear me say that. <laughs> uh, we, we, he says, we promise not to talk about your money. And so isn't that a strange thing Jesus said? He said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You can't outgive God. Here, here's another promise. We promise not to visit you. 
Well, isn't that strange in light of the fact that in the days of the New Testament church, the early church, they went from house to house telling people about Jesus. Uh, what you have here is an attempt for churches to make the church so soft pedal the gospel, uh, to water down the message so that people will just come and they can sit there and they can be comfortable in the pew and they can leave the church with their self-esteem built up, feeling good about themselves. And that's not what people need, my friends. No mention of hell, no mention of the judgment of God, no preaching against sin. They are just Satan-friendly churches. They don't give people what they need to hear. They give people what they want to hear. And you can draw large crowds like that, just giving people what they want, making them comfortable in the pew. This morning, let us examine the temptations of Christ here. Uh, three things I want to give you, and see how Satan uses the same temptations to wage war against the church and really war against you as an individual Christian. First of all, Satan tempts churches to meet just physical needs instead of the spiritual needs. You'll notice, if you would, in verses 3 and 4, And the devil said unto Jesus, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And so, uh, Tony Capolo is one that uh, we were reading just recently. He, he's one of the most prominent promoters of what is called the social gospel. And while not explicitly denying the gospel of grace uh, alone, he, uh, he urges and argues that it's our treatment of the poor and it's our uh, treatment of the oppressed uh, that will determine our eternal destiny. Now, folks, that is not true. It is knowing Jesus Christ or not that will determine your eternal destiny. Uh, the first temptation appeals to the physical in regards to Jesus. You will notice in verse 3, Jesus had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, it is the appeal to the physical. Of course, we're living in a time when people have come to believe that the physical is the primary purpose that uh, we're in life to begin with, that everything revolves around the pursuit of pleasure. In other words, if it feels good, it is good, they say. If I want it, if it appeals to me and my basic appetites, then it's fine. Uh, it is the lie of evolution, by the way. Uh, that man is basically a belly, and that man does not have a soul. And, and that man is just a combination of animal instincts and animal desires, and that there is no spiritual nature to man whatsoever. And that's not true. We're body, soul, and spirit. And of course, you know that the church can fall away and fall for the same strategy. The church can become a social church addressing only the physical needs of people and not meeting their spiritual needs. They become primarily interested in feeding the poor and clothing those who are needy, and that is important. This church over the years has probably given hundreds of thousands of dollars to needy families. 
And, and, and not only that, we support God's pit crew. We support God's storehouse. We have our own community closet uh, with food and, and clothing. Of course, there is a purpose in all of that. We need to care for the poor. But the Bible does make it very clear that we are to minister even to the physical needs of the congregation and, and, and those around us as well. Our here at Faith Memorial helps a lot of needy people. But many churches have sold out to what is called a social gospel, and they have fed and they have clothed people, but you can go to hell with a full stomach and some nice clothes on. You need Jesus, my friend. That is not feeding the poor and the hungry is not the gospel. Pointing people to Christ as the only one who can save you from your sin is the gospel. We should help the poor and the needy, but there's absolutely no saving merit, even if you're one that helps the poor a lot, and that's a good thing. That's not how you're saved. You're saved through Christ alone. And if you're one that's being helped, that's not going to save you either. You still need, we all need the Lord Jesus Christ because we're all sinners. There's a second temptation, and that is the temptation to preach a prosperity gospel. It is the gospel which says if you'll just live for Jesus and you'll just have enough faith that you can have a Rolex on your wrist and and you can have a Rolls Royce in your garage. Just come to Jesus, and you will prosper, and you will become wealthy. Well, that type of preaching tempts people to covet the possessions of this earth. And the Word of God says, love not the world, neither the what? The things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It causes people to have the wrong motives for following Christ. They follow Christ to gain more earthly possessions. Prosperity preaching didn't work for the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was a Pharisee, and and most of those guys were wealthy. And Paul said, I have suffered the loss of all things that I might gain Christ. He lost everything by following Christ. This third world, this uh, prosperity preaching doesn't work in the third world countries. They always come to America, you know, or some prosperous nation. Because those in the third world country, they don't have, hardly have anything. It, it didn't work for the persecuted Christians in the early church. Many of them lost their homes and they lost their jobs uh, for following Christ. And that's why the Macedonian churches helped them in their financial needs as the body of Christ. It certainly didn't work for the Lord Jesus. He says, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Jesus died penniless. He died alone. He he died naked on a cruel cross. Jesus said to the devil, man shall not live by bread alone. The greatest need of man is not just bread and feeding people. The greatest need is spiritual. The whole point is that there's more to life than just the physical. You have a soul. You are made in the image of God. And you have spiritual needs. And only Christ can meet those needs. There's one thing that the church can give that nobody else 
that is really the answer to the deepest need of the human heart and soul. One thing we hear today about felt needs. Sometimes people come to our church and, and they don't know what they need. And the needs of man are basically the same. They've always been the same since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of, of Eden. People have basically the need right here for forgiveness of sins. That is our greatest need. And only a gospel preaching church can give people the message of forgiveness of sins. It, it all comes in a church where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached on a regular basis. Secondly, major point here, Satan tempts churches to become liberal, compromising, tolerant, culture-pleasing churches. A little long, but you get where I'm going. Let's look at this second temptation. It says in verse 5, And the devil, taking Jesus up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou wilt therefore worship me, Satan says to Jesus, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall thou worship or serve. See, he said, I'm not going to worship you. That would have been sin for Jesus. He was sinless. It says the devil took him to a high mountain, and in a moment of time, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he has a purpose in what he's doing, as he always does, Satan. And he says to Jesus, I'll give you every one of them if you'll just fall down before me and worship me. And God has already promised. He had promised his son already the kingdoms of the world in Psalm Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, he promised to give him the kingdoms of the world. But first, Jesus had to suffer and die first. And so Satan was tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. Well, in the first service as well, Satan doesn't want you to hear this. <clears throat> Satan has always wanted to take God's place. He has always wanted to receive worship. It's the appeal of the spiritual. It is the temptation, too, to become a liberal, compromising church. Uh, it is the lie of rationalism. The lie that the human mind is sufficient in and of itself. Uh, there was a time when we lived in a nation where they believe the Bible to be the absolute Word of God. And that has changed in America. Now people believe that truth is relative. Uh, truth is what is true for you. Uh, that, that's truth, I mean, they say. If you, if you believe it, then it becomes truth. In other words, if you believe that Jesus is the Savior of sinners, that's fine. If that works for you, that's your truth. But if someone believes that Superman or, or King Kong or Santa Claus is the Savior of the world, that's also fine. That's, that's their truth. That's truth for them. 
matters of right and wrong are decided on the basis of what people think themselves about it. Instead of getting to the Word of God and says, what does God say? What does the Word of God say? They approach the Bible that way, folks. They, they say some of the Bible is true and some of the Bible is not true. Let me tell you something. It's either all true or it's not true at all. And this book, I believe with all my heart and soul, is the all-inspired Word of God. Who made them God to say, well, the part on creation in Genesis, uh, the first 11 chapters of the Bible is not inspired? Who made them God? Or to say that, do away with the supernatural parts of the Bible and the miracles of Christ. Who are we to decide that? See, the mind of man becomes the final authority instead of the Word of God being the final authority when you think like that. And then everybody, they do what is right in their own eyes instead of in the eyes of God. Now, the church faces the same temptation. It used to be that the battle over the inspiration of the Bible, it being the absolute, infallible, inerrant Word of God, that's where the battle was back in the 70s, 80s, even into the 90s. But there is a different kind of liberalism that we're dealing with today. And it's not just intellectual liberalism. It is a practical liberalism. They don't believe, the, the intellectual liberal doesn't believe that half of the Bible they don't believe in the blood of Christ. They don't believe in the virgin birth of Christ. They don't believe Christ is the only way to heaven. They believe there are many ways to heaven. Uh, and that's theological. That's what we call intellectual liberalism. But today we have a practical liberalism. In other words, it is those churches who say, well, we believe that Jesus shed his blood on the cross. We believe that the Bible is true, we believe that Jesus is the only Savior, but we aren't going to say anything because we don't want to offend anybody. Uh, quit singing about the blood of Christ, you know. It's, it's just too gory. It's too offensive to people, right? Uh, we don't want to upset somebody that might come into our building. Therefore, we're not going to tell them anything that would offend them. We're going to avoid the cross. I mean... I think of what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, for am I now seeking to please God or am I seeking to please man? And he says, I, if I were seeking to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. You can't please both. We're to please God. So I ask you the question, what is the difference between intellectual and intellectual liberal uh, and uh, who do doesn't believe the Bible, who doesn't believe in the virgin birth, uh, and the practical liberal who says he does believe it but doesn't preach it because he's afraid he's going to offend somebody. And the answer is the practical results is the same. It's the same. Satan wins. He wins. Let me ask you a question. Well, uh, how do you feel about it? in your own heart. 
Do you really believe this book that is before us today is a sacred book that is settled forever in heaven, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished or fully equipped unto all good works? What do you believe about it? I hope that you believe this Bible to be God's all-inspired Word. But the temptation of the devil is to be a liberal church. It is just to say, people, what do you want? And that's what we'll give you. Just go along with the trends of our culture around us. The Lord Jesus Christ said this, Get thee behind me, Satan. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. That's what Jesus said. Jesus Christ was right up front, wasn't he? He didn't pull any punches. Jesus declared the final authority of God in his word. But today, liberals say, now don't preach these truths. You don't, you don't want to upset anybody. Make people comfortable in the pew. Make them feel good about themselves, and, and they'll come back to church. Uh, don't preach against the sin of homosexuality, or same-sex marriage, or transgender, or abortion, etc., because it might offend people. Stay away from the moral issues. See, they, they're called political issues today, but they were moral issues before they were political issues. And so that uh, today churches have to fill it with something. So what are they preaching? They're preaching wokeism, and they're preaching critical race theory. They need to get back to the Word of God, folks. And that's why most of the liberal churches are almost empty nowadays. Uh, they have such a low view of the Word of God. Uh, can you imagine Jesus saying, during this, His earthly ministry of three years, uh, we just want to do whatever makes you happy. We just want to accommodate you. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? I can. No, Jesus said this. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you take up your cross and you follow me. That's what Jesus said. And so we find that Jesus didn't pull any punches. He did put it out there where the rubber meets the road. Dear friends, we're living really in a Laodicean, we get this church from Revelation, a Laodicean day when many people have fallen for the temptation of the devil to be a liberal church and not tell people the truth of the Word of God. We aren't primarily concerned here about building a crowd. If the crowds come, that's good. But we're interested in reaching people with the gospel. We are interested in glorifying God. That's what we're interested in. And we plant and we water and we try to remain faithful and we leave it to God to give the increase. But Satan is so pleased when churches turn liberal. Let me give you the third and final point, and that is Satan tempts churches to go down the road of emotionalism, entertainment, and sensationalism. Look at verse 9. He brought Jesus to Jerusalem. He set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. He said unto Jesus, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. And then here Satan starts quoting the Scripture. He says, For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, 
and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You've got to realize the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem was way up high, and the Kidron Valley, uh, of course you've got the Garden of Gethsemane across from that, but the Kidron Valley was down below. And thousands and thousands of people, even to this day, walk around down there. And the devil told Jesus to jump down, and the angels would catch him. The devil was saying to Jesus, Jesus, what you need to do is do something sensational and get your name in the newspapers and jump off of this and cause a sensation and you will have a huge following then. Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The church today faces the temptation to be sensational. It is the old lie of emotionalism Now, there is a place for emotions in Christianity. Don't misunderstand me. The Christian faith certainly has emotions in it. When I see a sinner coming to Christ and they're weeping before God because they are sinful and that Jesus paid it all and they come to know him and they know they're forgiven and they weep over that, that is a good thing. The Bible makes it very clear that the truths of the gospel are heart-changing and that they are heart-moving truths. When the two disciples were walking on the Emmaus Road after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus all of a sudden appeared and came along beside them. And the Bible tells us that he opened the Scriptures to them. And it was, after it was all over, they said, what? Did not our hearts burn within us while he walked with us? I believe in a heartfelt religion. Most Baptist churches don't have enough emotion. They don't have enough. It's a tragedy that we're living in a day when people will sit in the pew and and look on their cell phones, eBay, and all of that stuff. That's the number one thing people looking at in churches. They say now, on a Sunday morning, is eBay. That's 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 tragic. We're living in a day when people will sit in the pew and yawn and doze over truths that used to cause our grandparents to shout and to weep and to walk the aisle. What has happened to the church? Having said that, I'm telling you here that the answer, though, is not emotionalism either. It's not extremism either. I'm talking about something that is real. One of the greatest hindrances to the church today is people who profess that they know God, but in their works they deny Him. Titus 1.16. Hypocrites. Oh, I love Jesus and then live like the devil the rest of the week after you leave the church. That is, that is hurting the church in America. We need the real deal, folks. We need the real thing. I, I'm talking about something that is genuine. We need to really know Christ and seek to be holy even though sometimes we're not. I'm talking about something that is solidly based upon a real experience with Jesus Christ and the power of His Word moving in our very souls. Churches will do just about anything to get folks to come. But I'm saying you don't compromise the gospel. You don't change the gospel. You don't fool with the gospel. 
you don't leave out the gospel. Our job is not to make the gospel appealing. Our job is to make the gospel plain. Our our job is to make it available and to give people the opportunity to know the truth. That if you want to go to heaven when you leave this life, you you must repent of your sin, leave self-sin and Satan, and begin to follow Christ, believing that he died for you, that he rose from the dead, and that one day he's coming back for his church. Churches will... They, they just compromise the gospel. They're changing the gospel. But as long as the church becomes a sensational church, just majoring on that, you know what the devil will do? He will dance in the aisles of those churches, and they will be empty. I think in the way Jesus handled these temptations, we as Christians learn something of how we can become a sinner-friendly, a Jesus-friendly church instead of a user-friendly church. I want to give you three things real quick, and then we'll close. Number one, in this passage of the temptation of Christ, we see the presence of the Son of God. Jesus himself was on the scene. The greatest advertisement any church can have is that it is a church where Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is is wonderful. Amen? And when we can show people the real Jesus, there will be an attraction about that that is absolutely unbelievable. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll what? I'll draw all men unto me. The presence of the Son of God is what I see in the temptation. Secondly, I see the power of the Spirit of God in verse 1 and verse 14. Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. Verse 14 says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. But it was the power of the Spirit. Jesus went into the temptation, and he came out of this temptation victorious in the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit. And we ought to get so prayed up that our services would be so filled with the Spirit of God and with the power of God. And you ought to pray for me that the Spirit of God would anoint me and endue me so that my preaching would be in the fullness of the power of the Spirit of God. That when people come into this building, they will fall under Holy Spirit conviction and come to know the same Lord and Savior that we know. Notice, last of all, the principles of the Word of God. In this, you see the presence of the Son of God, you see the power of the Spirit of God, and you see the principles of the Word of God. Notice that in every temptation, Jesus answered it, it is written, it is written, it is said, it is written. He's using the Scriptures to fight Satan, and we can learn from that. There's a tremendous power in the Word of God. Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And everything we do as a church should be filtered through the, through the uh, sifter of the Holy Spirit. We always want to know, is it biblical? Is it consistent with God's Word? Will the Bible support what we're trying to do? When a church builds on the principles of the Word of God, 
it becomes a sinner-friendly church, a Jesus-friendly church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when you do a series like this, we know Satan comes after us. He hates to be exposed for what he truly is, a deceiver, a destroyer, one that he even at time appears as an angel of light. But Lord, he wants to take as many people to hell with him as he possibly can. He hates the work of Christ. He hates the work of the church. He hates it when we lift up Jesus Christ and exalt his holy name. Lord, I pray if anyone has entered our doors to today and they've never truly repented of their sin and by faith received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would bring them under conviction that you would draw them to yourself, for no man can come unless he's drawn of the Father, it says in John 6. That you would open their eyes and their hearts to know Christ. Open their hearts like you opened Lydia's heart, the seller of purple. God, you're able to save unto the uttermost. Regardless of how sinful a person has been, Lord, you can save them by your grace. You can, Lord, wash their sins as white as snow and cast them as far as the east is from the west and bury them in the depths of the deepest sea to remember them no more. You can wash the vilest sinner clean. Lord, I pray that you'll work in our church. May this church always be a conservative, Bible-believing church even till Jesus comes. Lord, we just want to please you. It's all about you. We love you and we praise you. Thank you for our people. Thank you for those who love the word and believe it. Thank you for those that are truly saved, that are part of this congregation, and even our guests today who truly know Christ. We're family. We're part of the forever family of God. May you be praised in all things. In this ministry, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.